Hi, this is Robert Furl, and welcome to Truth Quest's Q&A, where we take questions and look at them through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the truth is. We want to be able to look at the Bible to find out what the truth is, instead of approaching the Bible to back up what I already believe. If we approach the Bible in that way, it's a sure way to be sure that we're wrong. But we want to be able to evaluate what we believe. We want, to, we want to trust in the teachers that we've been given, but we want to always evaluate through the pages of Scripture. Like the Bereans, right? They receive the Word of God with all joy, but they search the Scriptures to see whether or not these things are true. And that's what we do here. We're on a truth quest, not an I'm right quest. We also want to walk by the fruit of the Spirit. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want the evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is in our lives by interacting with one another according to gentleness and kindness. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those that are in opposition. So that's our desire to uh, walk in such a way that we might be able to have compassion, truly interact with what the Bible has to say. So I want to go ahead and get right into our first question here. By the way, if you have questions and you're joining us, put the word question in front of your question. And then as I take time to scroll through there, I'll be able to identify it quickly and we'll be able to get to your questions. We'll be taking questions for the next hour. So good to see all you guys here both on YouTube and on Facebook. Let's go ahead and get to our first question. This one was left behind uh, last, like left behind for the rapture? <laughs> no, um, left behind from our last Q&A session. And uh, they asked a question, what kind of angels minister to the saints? This is taken from Hebrews chapter one. The very last verse of the chapter says, are they not all ministering spirits sent to, to minister to those who have been given life. So you and I have spirits that are uh, angels that are working with us, ministering spirits, ministering angels. And the question here is what kind of angels minister to us? I think there are a lot of things we could talk about. We could talk about how, how angels minister to us. They, they strengthened Jesus after his temptation. They strengthened Jesus after his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but the Bible tells us in a couple of places different kinds of angels. It tells us that there are there is Michael the archangel. Gabriel says he's an angel that stands in the presence of God. We have seraphim and cherubim. And in the demonic world of angels, uh, it says that we have we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. It seems to be one category of angels, maybe really high up. Um, Michael is called the prince of the people of Israel. And so these are principalities and powers, maybe an angel that's less powerful than the principalities or a demon that's less powerful than the principalities, principalities, powers, uh, and a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. So then there seems to be a host of angels that are there. Um, the answer to what kind of angels minister to us, uh, we don't ever find any of that. Um, we don't know if there are ever principalities or powers or um, uh, just a, a host of heavenly angels or whether it's Gabriel or Michael himself um, that minister to us. The Bible also talks about the angels of the children. So the concept of a guardian angel for children is really um, a biblical concept. 
So I um, hope that answers your question. I see we've got some questions already coming in here uh, today. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, take them. Really good to see you guys. Um, if you're uh, out there watching, pop on and say hi. Um, we, we love to have you interact uh, with us as long as it's in a polite and kind way. Um, it's good to see you, uh, JG. I'm bringing a question in here and I want to go ahead and we'll get rid of that. We'll bring it down here. Um, uh, JG says, Pastor Robert, what is your view on church councils? Ah, like the Council of Nicaea of 325 AD. Are they uh, authoritative for the church as a whole? Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, etc. So we kind of had a question on this last week. Um, it's funny because I looked up two of the other questions, but I didn't look up the councils. But I'm very familiar with the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea did not, um, although Dan Brown uh, in his um, in, in his book and it, that the movie with Tom Hanks uh, said that they had chosen the scripture. They had not. The scriptures were already already put together into the work that we find today, long before the Council of Nicaea. And uh, the Council of Nicaea really had to do, well, uh, the main thing was with the heresy that was there. And um, out of the councils came some creeds, and those are probably the most powerful thing that you and I find from them. Uh, I believe in God the Father, um, in uh, the maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only son. We believe that he was cr uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he rose from the dead, that he that he descended into hell, rose from the dead, and that is that's the creeds, one of the creeds that we get uh, from it, and we use it today for a, a test of orthodoxy. That's really the test. What do you believe about God? And if you genuinely believe those things, then we see that say that you are part of the church. Um, Constantine was the one who put together the Creed of Nicaea. Um, there are other creeds that are out there. Um, obviously, they're not scripture. Uh, they can be helpful, but they're not, they're not right or wrong. All right, uh, JJ, I appreciate you bringing that question back up again. And um, I'll, uh, I will do a little bit of, of research. Like I said, I researched a couple other questions that we had from our Saturday's Q&A. Um, uh, let's see, let's take, go ahead and take this question here from, uh, is it Linya? Uh, it looks like it, Linya. Um, so the question is, uh, what should I do or say to my sons when they come to me and tell me that my husband has yelled and cussed at them? Um, how do I honor my husband, but at the same time console my sons when they have been hurt by their dad? My sons are five, nine, and 11. All right, so first of all, I just wanna say that I'm sorry that that's happening to your boys. That's gotta be really hard on you. It's gotta be really hard on them. So honoring, honoring your husband doesn't mean that you don't disagree with him. It doesn't mean that you don't say, it's important for you not to cuss out our sons. I realize that you are probably living in some kind of a, a divided household. Um, I take it if your son's acting like this, that, I mean, if, you're, if your husband's acting like this, that he's a non-believer. Uh, if he's not a non-believer, he's acting like a non-believer when he blows it like this. And um, I, would, I, I, I would very respectfully, I would give you counsel to very respectfully and lovingly 
talk to your husband about what really is acceptable and what's not when, when raising children. And, um, you know, cussing at them uh, is just going to make them, it's going to make them frustrated. It's going to bring out some things in them that are bad. I know you already know that. I would really pray for, pray for your son. Um, I hope that, um, I hope that that's helpful. I don't think that you've just got to be quiet. You know, the Bible talks about women winning their husbands through silence. But when there's something that is that is potentially harmful to our children, uh, then I think there's a respectful way that a wife can address uh, her husband uh, to be able to do that. So I wish I knew a little bit more. I realize you might not want to talk about your husband uh, a little bit more in public, um, whether he's a believer or not. But I think that, um, or whether he's a professing believer or not, but I think that um, that, that can be helpful to you. All right, Lenny, I hope that is helpful. Um, Rachel, we I have a question here from Rachel. Good to see you. Um, after we die and go to heaven, do we still all have, um, do we still all have, do we still, oh, do we still sin at all for the rest of eternity? Or do, uh, or, or will evil live again? Rachel, thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Um, no, we are changed uh, into the likeness of Christ. And this sinful nature that I have inside of me now is going to go away so that I am not going to be able to be enticed or, or tempted or sin. Uh, we are going to be like Christ in his resurrected body. And um, what a great thing that's going to be because sin is deceptive, sin is destructive. And I think that we still sin today because we believe it's lies. We believe that there's something uh, for us to go ahead and gain from that. I'm going to take a, a, a moment here uh, to, uh, I realized, sorry, that I don't have my internet plugged in here and I want to do that because otherwise I think it's going to get choppy here. Uh, I'm going to do that and do that. All right. There we go. Hopefully there hasn't been a problem so far. Um, but no, our bodies, we're going to be, we're going to be, um, uh, the, all of creation groans. Satan's going to be locked away for a thousand years. When he's released after the millennium, he is able to once again entice and tempt those that are living in the world under perfect conditions and um, under the reign and rule of the Messiah. And um, then Satan is going to be taken away, thrown into the lake of fire. And, um, and, and, and then there, as far as, as we go, there will be no more sin for us once we, I think, first of all, die and are in the intermediate state until the resurrection and are resurrected with our bodies. And even after we get resurrected with our bodies, there will be no more sin as well. And we'll realize the truth that sin was never helpful, that sin was never good, um, that in our in, in the state that we're in now, we can be deceived by it. We can even have sin that we don't even know about. We have sin that dominates us, has dominion over us that we don't even know. And um, when we see things as they are, then we will not be sinning anymore and it will end up being a good thing. All right, Rachel, I really appreciate that. It's good to see the moderators join us uh, here. I appreciate you guys uh, coming on and, um, and moderating. Uh, we have a question here from Albert. Good to see you, Albert. Um, Albert says, question, hello, pastor. Um, Non-believers will at times point to the Israelites owning slaves to critique, uh, to criticize the faith in God 
or to critique the faith in God. As believers, should we respond to verses such as, and you give us a couple of verses here. Um, yes, let's go ahead and take a look at these. So uh, um, I had asked last week to give us some verses. This is one of them that I did spend some time on this week, um, just kind of refreshing myself on. And um, let's go ahead and go to Exodus 21. And I want to give, um, we'll look at these verses, and I kind of want to give a little breakdown of what we find in, as slavery in the Bible. And yes, it is something, by the way, two things that slave owners used the scriptures to justify their owning of slaves um, in antebellum South. And the um, and, and also um, that people criticize the Bible today um, and, and Christians don't know how to respond because we equate slavery in the New Testament and in the Old Testament to the shadow slavery that we find in the antebellum South and in, of course, you know, other places around the world as well. So um, uh, Exodus 21 verses two through four, I wanna make sure I got the right verses here. Um, all right, so um, yeah, let me just go ahead and bring you in here. Thank you again, Albert, for this question. Um, so it says here, um, let me get rid of this consider subscribing thing here. All right, all right, so um, it says here in verse two, um, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and then the seventh year, uh, he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself, but he comes in married, then with his wife, shall go out with him. If, he, uh, if his master has given him a wife, uh, she has borne him sons and daughters, his wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall not go out by himself. All right, so um, really important to understand that this is regulating slavery. God doesn't command slavery. Um, and you might say, well, why does God allow something that isn't right? Well, we see that as well with divorce. Jesus said, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your heart. And so, and, 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 and then, but you know, but a man and a woman were to leave their father and mother and two cleave together and become one flesh. Um, and so we see that there's regulation here. In fact, the, in the Old Testament, Albert, there was a, um, a command that if somebody kidnapped somebody else as their slave, that that person that did the kidnapping was to be put to death. And so the kind of slavery that we have in the South uh, before the Civil War was not the same kind of slavery that we had in Israel. Also, when you begin to look up the regulations, you find out that you were to let them free, go after seven years. I mean, it just talked about that here. Um, and there were, um, there were regulations that if you knocked out a tooth, you were supposed to let your slave go. So you couldn't abuse slaves the way that you abused them in the South. So we're taking, we're taking something written in the real world, uh, 12, 1400 years ago in a world where slavery was everywhere and where people became slaves for different reasons and God established in Israel that someone who was a slave could go free and regulated them. We might not agree with everything that uh, today that God does when we look at it through our eyes today, uh, looking back at that time, but it's really hard to judge other cultures based upon what we see and what we have in our culture today. And um, it's really hard for us not to take the culture that we have today and paint it over the top of what's happening in the Old Testament. So if someone wants to criticize 
the slavery in the Bible with me, I would say it's nothing like antebellum slavery. Can't even be considered anywhere near it or close to it. It was regulating it. Um, in the New Testament, we do find slavery as well. And Paul said, if you're a slave, don't try to be free. If you become a Christian, you stay within the status that you're at. But if you can become free, then use that for the glory of God. So by no means did he say that you had to, to, to stay a slave, but he was saying, don't make that the focus of your life. I think today in the same way that we don't want to make political things the focus of our lives, we want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the focus of our lives. It doesn't mean we can't be political. It didn't mean that a slave could not search, um, be free if the opportunity came for them to do that, but they were not to make that the focus of their life. And um, so slavery in the Bible was regulated. That's what. That's all that the Bible ever does to, to talk about it. And in the New Testament, we have the whole uh, book of Philemon that talks about slavery as well, where Paul wants to set the slave free that was a runaway slave from uh, Onesimus, from Philemon. And uh, Paul kind of strongly urges him to let him go and to let him free and to come back to him. And says, for this reason, he might have even have left that he might become returned as your brother. So there was the equality of slaves that are there. So hopefully that, um, that answers your question. I think it's really important for someone who's criticizing um, just to point out, hey, this is radically different. Slavery in Israel uh, was a lot different than it is today. And they, um, in, 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 they were more um, servants by contract, servants by decision. They could make a decision to stay with their master if they chose to do that if they thought that this is the life that they wanted and they wanted to choose. And this was the way that the nations interacted in those days. And God regulated it to protect those who were slaves. Remember, Israel came out of slavery, a slavery that killed children. They came out of it. And so um, God regulated it in that way. All right, Albert, if you want to ask, oh, let's take um, uh, 21, 20, and 22. Let's go ahead and take a look at, um, let me go ahead and pop out of here so I don't make you guys massively dizzy here. But I do want to take a look at your other passage here. Um, you, you uh, Same chapter, I think, right? Uh, 21 and, yeah, 20, 20 and 21. So let's get there. We'll read that really quick. Let me bring that back in. Um, so it says here, and if a man... Um, beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. So that's probably the hardest passage that we find. Um, nevertheless, we still see that he was to be to be punished had he died. And that was radically different than slavery. The Looking at it through the lens of how we see things today, the section there where it says, he will be punished for he is your property. That's the hard part, but it's still not property in the way that you found in slavery um, in the 1718, uh, 17, 1700s and 1800s um, because they could be set free. Um, there were times to set them free, the year of Jubilee, um, and and so on. So it's radically different, and I think it should be pointed out uh, for that. All right, Albert, I appreciate your question. I appreciate uh, you bringing it up again. If you have follow-ups to that question, um, then I will take that, all right, from you as well. I really appreciate that. We are wanting uh, to look at hard and difficult questions and be able to be equipped when people bring these up and ask us uh, these kinds of questions. I really appreciate that. All right. 
So um, is this Solas has a question? Solas says, um, if the church somehow has to go through the Great Tribulation, would it be appropriate to believe that they would be assassination attempts on the Antichrist for knowing how evil he uh, he is, truly is? Um, all right, well, Solas, I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to say from the church, no, because that's not the kind of spirit that we are. Uh, we are... Remember when James and John wanted to destroy the city? They rejected Jesus. And so our, our goal is we're not called to kill evil now. In the Old Testament, God did use Israel as his, a form of punishment, but not here and not today. So if by chance we're wrong and we do end up in the tribulation period, then um, I don't think that there'll be genuine Christians who will try that. Uh, and uh, I shouldn't say that. Maybe there's someone who's really misguided. Um, but I don't think that will be the case. And just to, to say that, um, I don't think that we're going to be in the tribulation period. I'm, I'm really confident about that. The early church fathers talked about us being ready because we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And um, if they believed that we had to be ready all the time, then they believed that the rapture could happen uh, at any time. I know people today talk about this being a fairly new doctrine. Um, being completely spelled out, uh, maybe so, but certainly not as far as the any moment return of Jesus Christ and um, not knowing when he's going to return. That was taught by church fathers. And if you believe in a mid pre-wrath or a post-trib, then there's no way you would know. You would know. You don't have to be ready today because you know when Jesus is going to return for you. So in Matthew 25, painstakingly goes over example after example of people who are not ready and Jesus encouraging us to be ready. So we have to be ready now. Um, I've heard people say, well, it could be mid-trib or post-trib, um, but you have to be ready now because you don't know if it's today. And, and maybe that's the case. But still, the Bible says to be ready now. And if you believe in post-trib or mid-trib or pre-wrath, then you don't believe that you have to be ready right now. And you got to do something with those passages. Like you got to say, well, those are talking about death, but they're not. When you look at the context, they're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. I am extremely um, confident on this point. I've done a lot of study and research on it. Um, uh, I, I like to say what Charles Swindoll says, I'm so pre-trib, I don't eat post-toasties. Um, we have so many men of God um, who are good Bible teachers that have been teaching this and studying it for years. David Jeremiah, um, uh, uh, Chuck Smith, Greg Laurie. Um, there are just so many guys. Uh, Charles Swindoll, uh, who teach that we are going to go before the tribulation period. And there's reasons for that. As much as there is a minority of people who feel really strongly that we're going to go post, pre, or mid. Um, and, and I'm just going to say that for um, evangelical Christians, it is a minority. All right. So thank you, Solis, for your question. I really appreciate that. It's thoughtful and interesting. But if I were going to write a novel and I was going to have the church left behind, I wouldn't have them trying to assassinate the Antichrist. All right. So Denise, uh, we have a question here from Denise. She says, um, how much do you believe we have lost in the translations of the Bible? And how much do you think was added or changed in the Bible 
that was not the word of God. Um, all right, well, let me, um, I want to show you a passage here. If I can find, I think I can find it really quick. I want to show you a passage here that makes me confident that God has preserved his word for us. Um, I even got it highlighted on my phone. All right, so I'm going to bring you in here and I'm going to show you a passage here that gives me confidence that we are, what we have in the word of God today, um, which would, would include all of our manuscripts that we have, uh, close to 6,000 Greek manuscripts, hundreds of, of um, Old Testament manuscripts, which are much better manuscripts than the Greek manuscripts, which you have a large number on. Uh, but here's what it says. Uh, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver uh, tried in a furnace. Oh, by the way, this is Psalms uh, 12, verses 6 and um, uh, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of the earth purified seven times. It's pretty pure. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from generation to generation. So I am extremely confident that we have in front of us. Let me see if I can find you again here. Um, yeah, there we go. Nope, that's Albert. Uh, let me see if I can find where you're at. I know you're in one of these. Um, there you go. Okay, Denise. Um, so I'm extremely confident that what we have in front of us by what God's word says is the word of God. Um, we know that it was the New Testament, for example, we have 6,000 manuscripts. We know that it was copied by people who were not professionals. We know that they made mistakes. And we have different, unique um, manuscripts that we can put together or build them into a tree of where the manuscripts came from. And we can see where people corrupt it because the line or the, the branch that comes off of that particular manuscript has the corruption in it when none of the other branches do. It's the sheer volume of New Testament passages that we have that allow us to compare and contrast and, and with great confidence believe that we come down to what is the um, what is the 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 proper uh, what was the the spirit filled given scriptures for us today. There are also uh, unique, different uh, manuscripts that have been found that come from different places that we can compare and contrast to one another, and the similarities are amazing. In fact, when you compare and contrast the similarities. Uh, in the Gospels, they are far more than the differences. Uh, if, if, the, the, we have 6,000 copies, so if there's a spelling error and they, they're different, it could be thousands of discrepancies in those verses. And so critics will say, well, there's you know hundreds of thousands of discrepancies within their manuscripts. Well, there are because there's so many of them. But so many of them are the same and so many of them don't matter because there's spelling differences or a word um, that has been transposed or a word that's been misspelled. All of those make discrepancies. And so we have great confidence uh, that we have today what is the New Testament. The Old Testament's a little different story. We don't have as many manuscripts, but we do have the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found, which were 1,500 years older than the oldest manuscripts that we had before. And we were able to compare them and find out that these were writ written by scholars who were professionals and they did a very good job at bringing us the word of God and that what we have today from the Old Testament, we can have great confidence with as well. So I love this. Um, 
because, I, and I love this topic, and I love talking about it, uh, because it's so easy for us to think that, and, and, and like King James only people will tell you that the King James Bible is is the only passage, the only, only Bible that there is, as if it came down as it was, or as it came down in the full Texas Receptus, which is the manuscript group that the, new King, the, the King James Bible was taken from. But we have all of these different manuscripts that we can compare and contrast. And when there are differences, there are footnotes in your study Bible. And that's the positive of a footnote. You can read in the footnote what it says, and then you can read what it says with a little marker by it so that you go down and see the footnotes so that you and I have in our study Bibles what is, um, we're comparing and contrasting those different manuscripts. We can also look at the different uh, um translations that are out there today to be able to look at them and to see how different translations deal with the different words that are there because you've got to make a decision also on how you translate a Greek word into English and is that translated properly or not. So let me see if I answered your question well. Uh, how much do you believe we have lost in the translation of the Bible? Um, I don't believe we've lost much, uh, if any. Uh, I think that the Bible says um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by the inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. And I think that we have, I think we have it almost in its entirety, if not in its entirety. And how much do you think was added or changed in the Bible? So I gave you how people do add and change and how we're able to chase that down. And the fact that they're different is good because if they were all the same, then it would be a, we would be accused of changing them. But God used the natural processes of people copying things, giving us so many copies that we can compare them. If you have a classroom full of 30 students and I give a one minute speech slowly so they can write it down, there's gonna be mistakes made by those 30 students. But you could collect all 30 papers and you'd be able to identify where mistakes were made and look at other papers to see what was proper and you could probably get really close if not exactly what I said in that one minute even though there's going to be differences within what those students have said and this is um, manuscript criticism or textual criticism and these guys do a great job of searching the scriptures that we might be able to come back to what is really said and um, so I hope that answers your question. This accounts for some of the discrepancies, by the way, um, that the Bible was just really honest to make sure that when it took Matthew, when it took Luke, it just wrote what was the most obvious one that was there. And if there was a difference that, you know, it says after the third rooster crowed or after the rooster crowed, it doesn't mean that there weren't three roosters, by the way. It just means, so, so, that we can have confidence that even even the differences we find in the Greek manuscripts in the in the book of in the Gospels gives us confidence that what we are studying and believe is the truth. So, like I said, I really love this topic. Uh, I love to teach on it. I love people to understand it because it's so neglected, and so many people don't find out about the different manuscripts until a certain time. And um, I think it's a great question, Denise, and I think it's something you should continue to search out and understand. There's a book called How We Got Our Bible by Lightfoot. It's an easy read. I, I hope you can still find it today. And um, it was my first exposure to this, and it's, it's, it's extremely good, all right? 
So I appreciate your question. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, we want to be able to be confident in the Word of God, and we should know why we can be confident in what the Word of God has to say. So we have a question from John here. Good to see you, John. Uh, comes to us from YouTube. Um, do uh, Did you attend college to become a pastor? You appear to be um, a grassroots led by the Spirit pastor. Much respect and prayers. Um, love, Calvary Tucson. All right, John, I appreciate that. Uh, no, I did not go to seminary. Um, I actually went to TVI, which is a technical school, um, when I was in Albuquerque. Um, and I just did that because I was receiving, my father had died when I was young. As long as I stayed in school, then I would receive um, Social Security for my father. And so I had my own business. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I had five businesses by the time I was 25 years old, and I went to school for auto mechanics. So I, I'm a certified auto mechanic, and um, I was uh, became a youth pastor, and I began to teach the Bible, and um, so I like to tell people, you're learning the Bible from a certified auto mechanic, and for some of you guys right now, you're going, ah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, um, when I was in Calvary of Albuquerque and the youth pastor there, um, Skip identified the gift of teaching in me, Skip Heitzig, who's the pastor there, and asked me to come and, and teach. Um, and I began to teach for him and he identified that. And from there, I was sent out by them and began to teach here and plant the church in, Al in Tucson and began to teach here in 1985. We started with six people and it's grown into what it is, uh, today. I don't discourage people today from going to Bible college, uh, to seminary, but I also don't think that you have to go in order to be used by God. And there are a lot of people in the late 70s and early 80s like me that went out and started churches just believing that God had called them. And if God called you, God would equip you to be able to do what you're going to do and God would bless and honor it. And I am so thankful that that's, uh, that that's what God did. Um, that in our weaknesses, God is strong and I have a weakness that I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to any kind of theological school, but I believe that God can be strong in that weakness. All right. I appreciate that, John. Thank you for asking that question. Let me share a little bit about myself there. All right. So, um, uh, we have a question here from Rawl. Um, uh, Rawl has a question about um, cremation, which we get all the time. Uh, should we or no? Uh, we get this quite a bit. Uh, the Bible never says anything about cremation. People burn fires and they're okay. Um, there's an argument out there that they, they used to burn criminals. I don't know that that's true or not. I've never seen the scholarly work on that, but they used to burn criminals. And so burning Christians is a problem. Um, the Bible never says anything like that. So cremation is absolutely fine. Um, and if that's someone's wishes, then God's gonna be able to resurrect um, a body that's ashes, that goes back to dust through being ashes or not. All right, so um, that is absolutely fine. Um, we have a question here from, and I'm gonna butcher your name here, uh, Bishbal. Uh, so uh, the, her question is, um, how can we explain God and will the connection to our, oh God's, oh God's will and the connection to our free will, uh, 
to non-believers. Okay, how can we explain God's will and the connection to our free will to non-believers? Uh, okay, so specifically to non-believers. Um, so if you get into a, a question about God's will and sovereignty and our free will and choice, uh, I would explain it that God's got his sovereignty. God's got a will for us. And there is a will for us that he allows us to move around and make choices. And we can decide if we're going to, to live that will that God has for us. Just because God wills something doesn't mean it's going to take place. The Bible says that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. If just because God desired it, it would happen, then everybody would be saved. But there is also the sovereignty of God. And that means there are certain things that God's going to do no matter what. God is 100% sovereign. If God wants to do something, he can do it. If God wanted to do something and didn't want to give us choice, I, I like to say that God's so sovereign that he gave man free choice. And there's people today who say God couldn't do that. Well, why not? Who are you to say that God can't give man free choice? Who are you to say that God can't allow people to choose to believe and receive salvation by grace through their own faith? Who are you to say that God can't do that? And so to a non-believer, I would say God is completely sovereign, but God has chosen to give us choice. So God chooses to give us choice and we can move around in that bubble inside of God's sovereignty. Sooner or later, we'll run into the sovereignty of God and we can't make choices. For example, um, I don't know what my appointment is for me to die. And um, even though Hezekiah in the Old Testament did change it by praying, I don't know that I can change it. And there are certain things that I'm going to run into and I'm going to run into the sovereignty of God and not be able to change that. So that's how I would describe it uh, to other people. There are people who believe um, that everything that's happening is designed by God. There are people on the other side also that believe in open theism. That is that God doesn't know what's going to happen next. God doesn't know if I'm going to take a drink of coffee or not. God doesn't know. I'm going to, oh, oh, no, I wasn't going to do it. God might have thought that I was, which is of course not true. God knows everything and God gives man free choice. And the reason he gives us free choice is because if I don't choose to love him, then I have to love him. Then it's not my choice. And what kind of choice is it if you make somebody love you? And so God has given us a choice that we could love him, that we could choose something that is deceptive and wrong, that we think is gonna be gonna really make us happy, like sin, or we could choose to love him and wanna walk with him in purity. Um, all right, so I hope that that answers your question. Uh, you can ask a follow-up question on that if you would like to. Um, all right, so we have a question here about the second coming of Christ. This comes from Yvette. Yvette, good to see you. Uh, she comes to us from YouTube as well. Uh, Pastor Robert, what are your thoughts about the second coming of Christ? Do you think we are near that time? I think, I think we are extremely near that time. I believe that when we look around the world today and we look at what the Bible has to say about the last days, that we are living in them. First of all, the Bible says that in the last days, God's going to bring down this, this uh, coalition of nations. It's Ezekiel 38, 39, coalition of nations to Israel to battle against them. Israel has to be a nation for that to happen. 
That's in the last days. In fact, the very last days. Uh, also, the Bible says that in the last days, God's going to gather the nation of Israel back again into Jerusalem. Jesus said that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. Um, Israel is almost completely controlled by is, uh, the Jerusalem is almost completely controlled by Israel today. The Bible says in the last times, perilous times are going to come. Men are going to be lovers of themselves and it gives this whole list. And when you look down that list, lovers of themselves and that list, we are living in those days. I think it's one of the reasons that there's so much depression today. So many people are so distraught. I think we're lovers of ourselves and we aren't living for other people. I think that's a mark of our society and the Bible says that will be what the last days are. And I think that we are, I think we are living in them. The Bible says time, things are going to get worse and worse and worse like, like birth pains and the world around us is getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and and um, I think that there's a lot of deception going on today. I wonder about this whole UFO thing that's taking place and whether or not, you know, the, the release of the records of the UFO sightings by our government um, and that that might not be an excuse for when the rapture happens, that, that Christians were taken out of the way and will be identified as bad people, by the way. The bad people were taken out of the way will be the thought and will be the idea. So I believe that we are close to the last time. But let me put one caveat to that. Don't set dates. And don't believe people who set dates. There are all kinds of people that are going to be setting dates now. We're coming close to 2,000 years from when Jesus was crucified and his ministry began. This is going to be a catalyst, just like 2000 was, just like 88 was, because Israel became a nation in 1948. This is going to be a catalyst for all kinds of people to set dates. Mark my words, I'm predicting that people are going to set dates and predict when Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible says he's going to return at a time we don't know. It's also at a time when, when, when the Bible says peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. So that's my caveat. Be careful not to set dates. Um, but I do believe that we are living in the last days. And I really thank you for your question. I love to talk about, uh, I love to talk about that. And um, uh, again, you know, follow-up questions are welcome on specifics for the return of Jesus Christ. All right. So we have a question here from um, Diana that comes to us from Facebook as well. So Diana asks, um, Paul said, don't even eat with these people. But Jesus says, love your neighbor. So do we avoid non-believers or befriend them? All right, good, good, thoughtful question that takes two different passages and compares them and seems like they're saying something completely different. Uh, in 1 John, where it says that if they come to your door, don't invite them into your house. These were false teachers that had been given, and you can go back and you can look this up. Look up, look up the reason 1st, 2nd, uh, and 3rd John were written. Um, look up, we've got full teachings on them. You can go to calvarytucson.com to find our full teachings on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, you can also uh, download our app. Just look up in your app store, Robert Furrow or Calvary Tucson. Then go to teachings, go to 1 John, uh, and, and especially watch the studies that we did on 1 John, and we go into detail about the different passages in there that talk about false teachers. And so they were receiving and accepting false teachers, and they were bringing them into the church, and they were allowing people to be deceived. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Get these guys out of here. Don't even invite them into your houses. Stop eating with them. 
Jesus is saying, love your neighbor. And I want to, when, 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 when I'm talking to someone today who is a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, it's not the same context. Uh, they are, they're not deceiving the church. I realize that some people from the church get deceived from it, but most people in the church today see Mormonism for what it is. See Jehovah Witness for, for what they are. If we were letting them come in to the church and talk and, and fellowship with us and just letting them stay there, then we would have to get rid of we that, that then John would apply. So, um, like I said, if you want to go and, 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 and look over our studies, we go into depth in that. I think I did, um, in the latest time that we did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I think we did two, maybe three studies in all three of those books. Maybe two in 1st John. Um, maybe maybe it was a three or three or four. But you definitely will be able to see us talking about false teachers by the title that's there. All right, calvarytucson.com. Just go to teachings. Uh, it's going to go to Old Testament. Um, excuse me, go to New Testament, go to 1 John, and uh, you'll find them there or download our app. All right? So um, I appreciate your question. Hopefully that answers that. There really is not a contradiction. We are not into shunning. That's what the, the Jehovah Witnesses do when someone is a Jehovah Witnesses leaves. When someone is a Christian leaves, we reach out to them. We want to see them come back and we love them and we support them. And that's very biblical. When someone is in the church teaching false doctrines, persuading people, get rid of them. Get them out of there. They're divisive. Warn them once or twice, the Bible says, and then remove them. All right, Diane, as always, uh, if you have a follow-up question, I'd love to answer follow-up questions um, if I have not been really clear on certain questions. All right? Um, thank you, JG. Uh, I appreciate that. And um, we have a question here from Dale. Um, and Dale says, uh, question, my brother switched from Lutheran to Catholic. I sent him your hot topic on Mary since he now prays to her. He said you were wrong. <laughs> I let it go. Is there anything that I can say? Um, I would, when I'm talking to someone who is Catholic, my greatest concern is whether or not they believe that they are saved by the sacraments or whether or not they believe that they are saved by, by Jesus Christ and faith through grace, by grace through faith. Um, if they believe that they're saved by the sacraments, then they're not saved. The sacraments can't save them. If they believe that they're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, by trusting in him, then they can be saved because they believe everything about Jesus. What they believe that is wrong about purgatory, about the Pope, about praying to Mary, and they're going to say that they're asking Mary to pray for them, um, doesn't keep them out of heaven. You and I probably believe something that's wrong. That doesn't keep us out of heaven. It's putting our trust in Christ, having faith in him, and then being saved by his grace in our lives. So um, I would... Um, I would not, I, I probably would let it go. But realize this, his authority is different than yours. The Catholic Church takes tradition and puts that alongside of scripture. And they got a passage, and I can't remember where it's at, that says, Paul says, hang on to the traditions that I gave you. But there's no reason for us to think that those traditions weren't scripture, weren't the scripture that he gave them. Those were the traditions that he gave them that they were to hang on to. And so they say that 
popes and uh, um, have had the right to be able to establish scripture. And so they go back in their history uh, and say they put tradition on the same level as, as the Bible. We don't. So if they're going to believe tradition, then they'll believe that they can ask Mary to pray for them. Um, and I, I talked about this in that hot topic. Mary also is an omnipresent. She can't hear all the people's, you know, what, how many billions Catholics are there? She can't hear all these prayers from these Catholics and respond to them. She's not God. She's not omnipresent like God is. And so, um, yeah, there's one mediator between us and, and God, the man, Jesus Christ. And so all of those things speak against this. Um, but I would not let that divide your fellowship with your brother. I would, um, if you're going to have any discussions, have discussions about what he believes um, about salvation, about Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and then whether or not that is the ransom for the sins and how that is applied to us. All right. So thank you for your question. I really appreciate that. Again, I think, hey, this is real world stuff. We're dealing with people all the time that belong to different denominations that believe something different than we do, but we all are saved in the exact same way. We have to believe in him. We have to know him in order to be saved. Thank you, Dale. I appreciate that. We have a question from uh, Sarah Marie. Sarah, uh, Hello, Sarah. Good to see you. Uh, Sarah says, um, the unborn babies who are aborted, the children who are murdered at a young age, do they go to heaven and have a, um, a name with God? Does the Bible say anything about their souls and spirits? Uh, yes, actually, they do. Um, a while back, I set out to just do a real study on the age of accountability and whether or not it was genuinely true. And when I set out to it, uh, I wasn't so sure I was going to find anything on it. I had talked to someone who made some sense when he talked about, you know, when, when we talk about hell, there's annihilationists and there are people that believe that hell is this torment and torture forever and ever and ever. And I talked to someone who said that he believed that certain people were annihilated, but he didn't believe in annihilationism as it is in, um, as it's taught by some, some cults just teach everybody's annihilated eventually. Um, but believing that people who never heard the gospel were annihilated, believing that babies that were, um, didn't have a good chance to be born, miscarried, or their lives taken from them were, were um, just gone. They just didn't exist. Um, children that didn't have a chance to make commitments to Christ at a young age just didn't exist. So I really wanted to dive into that passage to, to look at what he was saying, to see if there was any validity to what he was saying. And um, surprisingly, I found that God talked about the first generation that came to the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy and how they passed away in the wilderness, but those under 20 went in. And David, of course, talks about his child dying and that he will go to his child, but his child will not come to him. And so, and there are other passages too that, that are connected and that make us confident that when a child dies or is miscarried, that child is in the presence of God and their soul is in his um, is in his presence. Um, whether or not some people are annihilated and some people suffer forever and ever, again, not annihilationism, 
Um, I don't know. And, and we can talk about that a little bit later on if you would like to. Um, but yes, surprisingly, when you dive into this topic, um, I do have, uh, I think I got a hot, if we have a hot topic on it, but I don't know if it's been released yet. So we've got about 30 hot topics that were, um, that we've got that are cut that we haven't released yet. And, um, I think that's one of them, or we might have an hot topic that is released. I remember cutting it on, um, the age of accountability. All right, Sarah Marie, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, let's see. Um, so Jeff has a question here about Catholicism. Um, is Catholicism false teaching? Um, there is false teaching in Catholicism. Uh, if I believe something, if, if Calvary Chapel believes something that's wrong and I believe it, that would be a false teaching. If I, I can choose to, to break from the tradition or the distinctions of Calvary Chapel, when I identify something as a false teaching. That doesn't mean I'm not Calvary Chapel anymore. It doesn't mean I'm not a pastor of a Calvary Chapel church. Um, those who are Catholic believe that Jesus is, is God. They believe that he was crucified. They believe that he died, that he rose again, that he was born of a virgin. They believe all of the things that you have to believe in order to genuinely be a Christian. And then you got to put your trust in Christ. So believing those things, I mean, just believing them doesn't mean anything. That's like the demons who believe and tremble. But you have to put your trust in Christ. So the heart of what they believe is right, but there are false teachings that are connected, like purgatory, like praying to Mary. Are the, These are secondary issues. I believe they're secondary issues. I realize there are people who are going to disagree with me and would say that differently, but... You know, th this is what I believe. Um, I know a lot of Catholics that have a genuine, real commitment to Christ. And um, some might say, well, I'm making judgments on them. And I don't, I don't know that I am. Love believes all things. And if they tell me that they believe that it's their trust in Jesus Christ that saves them, then I believe that. And that's really what it takes to be saved, right? If we receive him, if we believe on him, we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. All right, Jeff, thank you for your question. I really appreciate that. Again, it's thoughtful because there are a lot of things that they believe about, a lot of things the Catholics believe about the Pope that we would disagree with, about um, priests that we would disagree with. One of them, that priests can't be married, um, and we would disagree with those things. I think it's caused all kinds of problems um, within the, the, uh, the Catholic Church. All right, um, so Jim has a question. He comes to us from YouTube as well. Looks like we're choosing all YouTube questions. Um, I guess Jess was from Facebook. All right. Um, so, um, Jim says, I believe that there will be no sadness in eternity. And I think that's biblical, right? Uh, heaven is described in Revelation as what's not there. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow. So, I think that's biblical. So, how will people like David not be sad at passages that deal with the calamity after God said, the sword will not depart from your house? Well, because David is going to be in the presence of God and in the presence of God is fullness of joy. Decisions that I've made that are sinful, that cause me to think, that cause me sorrow today are not going to cause me sorrow then because I'm going to be completely forgiven. I'm going to be in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy. And um, 
Uh, so I don't think that David is going to be sad because of the calamity that came to his house because of the things that he did. The end of the life of David was tragic. He had such a good opportunity to be able uh, to ride out and finish the race well, and he didn't do it. And it's sad, but he will be full of joy in the presence of God. So will we, um, whether or not we finish the race really well or not. Some will be saved as if through fire, the Bible says. Some are barely going to make it in, but they're going to make it in. And they'll be in that fullness of joy as well. All right. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate your question. As always, follow-up questions are, um, are, uh, are welcome. All right. If you want to talk more about something the, the way that I answered that. So we have a question here from Rachel. Again, Rachel says, is voodoo magic real according to the Bible? So the Bible never addresses voodoo. Okay. Um, and I think voodoo has some strange roots to it. Um, and uh, I can't remember all of them right now. Uh, I was, um, yeah, I can't remember all of them right now. I've done some 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 research into voodoo, and, and it's got some strange religions. And there's some voodoo that's mixed with Christianity in um, some of the Caribbean islands. Um, so it doesn't deal with it, uh, but it does deal with the occult it does deal with mediums um and staying away from these things so i think that thing those things that are practiced within voodoo are addressed although voodoo itself isn't addressed so that we could say that it, it's wrong and to stay away from it and and not to practice it even when it's mixed with uh christianity i think it's haiti and in, in a couple of other places in the caribbean um voodoo is mixed and maybe even expanded past that you know um i think some places in the south even um in, uh, in New Orleans and other places, there are those that are practicing um, this different kinds of voodoo that they mix with Christianity, and it's um, it's not genuine at all. Um, so, no, it's not real according to the Bible, and we should stay away from it, as far away from it as we can, because these kind of things that are done in voodoo, we've been warned against and told to uh, stay away from them. All right? So I, I appreciate that. Let's see, we have, um, we have just a few more minutes here. It's amazing, sometimes the time just flies by in these, um, in these Q and A's. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we'll see if we can just take a couple more here. Uh, so we have a question uh, from uh, Tracy, uh, kind of a follow-up to a question I answered earlier. What are some of the things today that lead you to believe that the rapture is close? Um, that the world is getting worse and worse for one of them, that wars are increasing. Uh, there are proxy wars fought, fought all over the world. When you, when you look at how many wars there are, and Jesus said these things were going to increase. Um, when you look at, when you look at the, the raging of the seas and the climate changes, which, which I think are a sign of the last days, whatever led to them, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get an argument over climate change. But whatever led to them, I don't know, but the Bible talks about these things increasing in the last days, and they are definitely increasing. Plus, the Bible gives us signs that in the last days, there are going to be people teaching doctrines of demons. Jesus talked about not being deceived. Many false teachers are going to go out in the last days teaching the doctrines of demons. There are many false teachers out there today. Um, as I said, there's a passage that says, in the last days, perilous times are going to come. Men will be lovers of themselves and, give, uh, and, and, and disobedient to parents. It gives this whole list there. And I'll need to look up that passage. Um, just, just 
look in your search engine. Um, in the last days, perilous times will come. The passage will be pulled up for you and you'll be able to read it there. Also, the nation of Israel being reborn is a sign for the last days because God is getting ready to deal with the nation of Israel in the 70th week of Daniel where all things will be complete uh, for the nation of Israel and for sin uh, during that 70th week of Daniel, which is the tribulation period. All right. Hopefully that's um, informative, Tracy. I appreciate your question. I realize there are people who would like to say that we're not living near the last days today, but I believe we are. Does that mean it couldn't be to go another couple hundred years? No, it certainly could. Uh, and these people who are setting dates have, have so far been wrong. In 1844, there was the great disappointment where many people thought Jesus was coming back. And they were so disappointed, so disillusioned because they believed the things that were said. And um, some, uh, some churches today um, that believe really strange things come out of it. Seventh-day Adventist and a few of the other churches today come out of that kind of a belief. All right. So, um, Albert, we got one more here. Um, I'm going to take this one, and it's 4 o'clock right now, so this will be the last question that I take. I really appreciate you guys being with me um, here. Um, if you want to write more questions down, I'm going to get a copy of all the questions that came in, so I'll be able to look at them later to be able to answer them in our, um, in our, uh, our next Q&A. Uh, we did not talk today about the passage in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.15, that women are saved by childbearing. So a little teaser out there. We'll talk about that in the future. All right. So um, Albert, again, thank you. You said for answering my question, Pastor. In the tribulation, it appears Satan will stir up nations to battle the Antichrist. Will he come against himself? Is this just uh, is this to destroy Israel? Let me read this again. Thank you, uh, Pastor. In the tribulation, it appears Satan will stir up nations to battle the Antichrist. Why would they come against him? Is this to destroy Israel? Um, so we're talking about the Battle of Armageddon. We're talking about the Antichrist and the Euphrates River being dried up and this two million man army coming into the Valley of Jezreel and the Antichrist is going to fight against them. Um, and I'm sure there's demonic aspects that are here. But remember, the beast gets his power from Satan, from the dragon, and the false prophet. So all three of these are working together. So I've never taken time to think about what this other motivations of this other army would be. Um, and since they're ungodly, it seems to me that there would be some demonic influence there. But I think men can make free will and choices apart from demonic decisions. And so there's just war. I mean, there's just war that happens and this huge war um, that ends up in the valley of Jezreel and Jesus returns at that moment and that's when he comes back in that battle of Armageddon. So um, as lightning flashes from the east and goes to the west by the way. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. I don't think Satan's fighting against himself there. Um, I think it's probably just mankind full of hatred, anger, and war. Uh, so I appreciate the time that we've been able to spend here together today. I look forward to our next Q&A. That will be uh, Wednesday. This is Wednesday. It'll be Saturday at 3 o'clock from 3 to 4. I really appreciate these times that we can take searching the Word of God. Again, hey, we want to take hard questions. Uh, I'm not saying that I have all the answers to them. I'm saying that we'll take time to look them up. Uh, we want to be able to answer any questions that are asked us. We want to be able to give on a, um, answers to what we believe. 
and to look at questions that maybe are, are hard and difficult and have the answers to them. So I really appreciate you guys. Um, I, um, I love the heart and the mindset that we have here, the, the tone be, or being led by the spirit that we are respectful and loving towards one another, even when there's disagreements, which is the way that we ought to be if we are indeed led by the spirit. All right, so I will give you an invitation to church here in just a couple of hours. Uh, we are looking at the second half of Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at four aspects of faith that are really powerful. They really help us. We want to be men and women that live by faith. And so we're going to look at, at different ways in which we can make sure that we are living by faith and evaluate whether or not we're living by faith today or if we might be living by our flesh instead of living by the Spirit and being men and women who are led by faith to make decisions, all right? So God bless you guys. It's really good seeing you. Stay close to Jesus this week. Study the Word of God, um, and um, don't be afraid to give an answer. The Bible says, be ready in season and out of season to give an answer for the hope that is within you. All right, God bless you guys. We will see you uh, later on, uh, if not before, next Saturday, hopefully. All right, God bless you guys.